Hello, I'm Garni Barkajarian of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute and CNS member for more than 10 years. What I love most about being a member is access to cutting edge science and the opportunities that have advanced my career. I've also gained new colleagues and lifelong friends. Being a CNS member has been so rewarding. The value of membership cannot be defined by a number. Join me and the over 10,000 neurosurgeons who are making a difference in the world. Visit cns.org slash membership podcast today. Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to the next episode of our um, Controversies in Neurosurgery podcast that we're doing as part of the CNS uh, podcast offerings. And um, as usual, I'm, I'm Seth Oliver, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rashna Ali. And then our guest today is Ahmed Razlan, who's a professor of neurologic surgery at uh, OHSU here in Portland. Um, and so first of all, I welcome the Russia and Ahmed. Oh, hi, thanks, Dan. Nice to meet you, Thess. And thanks, Roshna, and thanks, uh, Thess, for inviting me. And thanks to the CNS, Christy, to, for organizing this. Great to have you yeah, on. And, yeah, and, and then to, I, I, I forgot to mention that our, um, our topic for today is DBS versus RNS for epilepsy surgery. And we're going to kind of talk about um, those topics, which are definitely something that uh, I think uh, gets a lot of discussion at our, um, our national meetings these days, and is definitely on the a, a topic of focus for a lot of people who do epilepsy surgery. And um, just to kind of get us started, uh, Dr. Roslin, if you want to just kind of tell us a little bit, kind of what is um, you know DBS and RNS, and you know kind of briefly how those those things fit into your uh, treatment algorithm for for epilepsy surgery. Fantastic. Well, uh, thank you, guys. Uh, well, the, these are two different methods for neuromodulation for treatment of epilepsy. So conventional epilepsy surgery, the resective epilepsy surgery, is still has a big role in the treatment of a lot of patients. But uh, unfortunately, we now are able to identify greater proportion of patients that need surgery but wouldn't qualify for resective surgery because either resective surgery wouldn't address their uh, seizure burden by eliminating all the ictal onset zones or because it could see, could cause side effects. Um, but those, because we have these technologies of uh, the additional and advanced neuromodulation, we're able to offer additional therapy, surgical therapy, if you will, to those patients. So let's start with neuro, you know, DBS as a method of neurostimulation. Both DBS and RNS are cranial neuromodulation, which is to distinguish this from vagus nerve stimulation which is cranial nerve or peripheral nerve stimulation for epilepsy. The cranial neuromodulation for epilepsy could be broken down into two parts. Either you want to modulate a regional, local, or ictal onset zone network, or you want to produce large-scale, widely distributed, or global network. And this is the main difference between deep brain stimulation and you know, responsive neurostimulation. In order to implant a responsive neurostimulation device or RNS, you need to identify where the ictal onset zone or the suspected ictal onset zone. And the reason for that is very important because it's, it is not a continuous stimulation. It's only triggered by detection of seizure activity. And in order for the device to be active, it needs to be close enough to the ictal onset zone so it gets triggered. Because if it's implanted away from the ictal onset zone, it won't be active. So that's, that's the main difference. DBS is an open loop continuous stimulation. 
And as such, it could be implanted in a variety of regions in the brain to produce its effect. The current you know, uh, FDA approved indication for DBS is stimulation of the anterior nucleus of the thalamus for treatment of medically refractory epilepsy, specifically localization-related epilepsy, meaning you know, you know, uh, impaired awareness or focal epilepsy was a, was a complex partial nature, but not idiopathic generalized. Now, we do use it off-label for that indication, but the main indication is what I just mentioned. A classic example would be somebody with frontotemporal epilepsy that has, you know, biinsular, bifrontal involvement, bitemporal. The anterior nucleus of the thalamus is part of the PAPES circuit and as such is connected heavily to the bilateral temporal lobe. And therefore, it could reduce seizure burden by changing the drivers of epilepsy in, inside the temporal and insular lobes and frontal lobes. So that's, that's, one, that's how DBS is supposed to be used to modulate large network in patients with multifocal epilepsy or uh, patients with generalized epilepsy. Responsive neurostimulation, on the other hand, is implanted in either bitemporal lobe in temporal lobe epilepsy that's bilateral, or it's implanted in an area where you couldn't remove. So the indication for RNS, they approved the indication, after, of course, after medical intractability and seizure burden and social condition that allows you to use the device, is you have to have either two ictal onset zone, bifocal epilepsy, or single focal ictal onset zone that is in an eloquent area. That's the indication for responsive neurostimulation. So first one is used for global treatment. It does not need to be implanted in the ictal onset zone. You don't even need to know where the ictal onset zone is. And one is regional or local in which it has to be implanted in the ictal onset zone to be triggered. But that's not the only difference. There is another additional important difference, which is one of them reads the brain and writes into the brain, and one of them only writes into the brain, doesn't read anything. And that's a, a, an important difference for our partners, the neurologists. Responsive neurostimulation reads the brain, stores you know, uh, events that are, represents seizures, either clinically or electrocorticography. And that's over time is an, a very valuable piece of information that allow us to know the seizure burden, the diurnal variability or the monthly variability or multidian variability that allow us to see whether a particular event impacted seizure frequency or burden positively or negatively, medication use impact, allow us to do that you control epilepsy. It's even used as a diagnostic tool to determine which side temporal lobe is worthy of removal. You know, we, we have this path of RNS to resection. DBS currently does not have this capability. DBS currently is a device that only delivers electrical energy into the brain to change our brain network. So it doesn't actually read anything. But of course, as we the, the discussion will go on, we'll discover how these waters are muddy and how one is being used for the other how DBS is now being used as a focal therapy and how is RNS is being used as generalist therapy. Yeah, that, that's a wonderful uh, summary of a complicated topic. And the reason we chose you as a guest because I knew that you could explain that better than just about anybody, <laughs> which there's a lot of de details packed in there, but you did, I think, a nice job for our listeners. And if, if nothing else, you take away from that, that wonderful description is that, you know, DBS is in its, in its you know, kind of definition that more of a network treatment where, where 
RNS is, is quite focal. And then the other part, like, like Dr. Roslin said, is that, that one is a closed loop stimulation that reads the brain. The other one is, is open loop and continuously stimulating. And, and you kind of uh, took the words out of my mouth. I was going to kind of ask you, you know, where the, where the water gets more money. So it is, is a, uh, uh, um, uh, controversies podcast and really where is there kind of areas of overlap where you might use DBS um, or RNS? I know those are kind of, and I should, as you kind of um, alluded to, those are almost exclusively off-label uses of the devices, but I think most of our people who are going to be listening to this, especially trainees, will be exposed to some of those applications. I think it's reasonable, and, and they're certainly being discussed in, in meetings and in, in journals frequently. So I think it's worth talking about where, where you see the future of these, these uh, therapies going and how we're kind of you know, pushing the limits with them currently. And we talked a little bit about um, the other thing you may kind of discuss as part of that is you know, different targets, especially different thalamic targets. Um, um, both for, for uh, responsive and, and, and deep brain stimulation. Excellent. All right. This, these are all important questions. In fact, these are the these are the thought process of the topics of research and inquiry currently. So um, let's start with DBS. Well, while DBS is has two features, it's implanted in a network modulation fashion. It is also known that uh, low frequency chronic stimulation of ictalancet zone could modulate ictalancet zone activity and leads to you know, reduction of seizure burden. As such, there are multiple reports of the use of deep brain stimulation as a focal treatment. For example, there is a Brazilian group that uses deep brain stimulation recruit for bilateral hippocampal stimulation. There is a, the Mayo group has published extensively on the use of chronic low frequency stimulation of octalancet zone, either using strips or grids, or even the old you know, motor cortex stimulation-like devices were implanted with strips uh, that are used for spinal cord stimulation to treat epilepsy. So that's one important recognition that we need to know. You could use a focal therapy, not in a responsive fashion, but rather in a continuous open low fashion. And that's, that is usually effective as long as you don't induce seizure. And the way you go about this is by changing frequency and amplitude of stimulation to avoid increasing excitability. So that's that's important change. The other th thing that we all know about DBS that we have now devices that can actually record brain activity. We have, you know, um, the new DBS batteries can did record epochs of neural activity and can analyze the frequency power band and other features in the recorded activity. And that was not initially indicated for epilepsy or designed even for epilepsy, but nevertheless, this capability of recording brain activity exists or sensing. So we have a sensing DBS. And as such, you could use this sensing capability to plan or program the device to, to deliver therapy based on information, either that's through real time or through recording the activity, see you in clinic, rechange the program based on the information. So either as a real time or as a post hoc analysis, if you will. So that's 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 how deep brain stimulation is being used similar to RNS, both A as a focal therapy to, to multiple areas, and B uh, by allowing the DBS to sense and record brain activity and store it for future planning or for real-time planning. Now, as we all know, DBS is you know, cleared by the FDA to sense, but it's not cleared by the FDA for real-time stimulation 
based on closed loop information. So that's still off-label even outside epilepsy, even in movement disorder. So that's one use. As for RNS, RNS is also being programmed to deliver stimulation in a semi-chronic fashion, in an interrupted fashion, but in a continuous phase. Of course, the, the, the main burden to that is the battery usage, but it's, uh, it's with clever you know, um, duty cycle planning, you could get almost a chronic stimulation pattern with RNS by duty cycles that deliver stimulation on and off uh, with, with a wide differential, one to 10, one to 50, whatever that is. The second thing that it is implanted in areas of the brain that aren't part of you know, the, the ictal onset zone, but it also areas that is widely distributed, so large network and seizure detection is possible. What is the ideal site for that is the thalamus. The, th the thalamus is a central hub for multiple input and multiple output. As such, it could be used as an area for A, detection of seizure, but B, delivery of electrical energy that's rewildly distributed into the brain to reduce seizure excitability. And that the example for that is the ongoing Nautilus trial, which is stimulation of the centromedian nucleus of the thalamus for treatment of idiopathic generalized epilepsy. And we all kind of know this, that you know, if you have multifocal epilepsy coming from the anterior half of the brain, frontotemporal insular, then you're connected to the anterior nucleus. Well, if the origin is posterior quadrant or parietal occipital, we're most likely contributed to the centromedian or even the pulvinar. You know, the group in Stanford just, just published a paper in Brain last month about multi-site implantation where they implant three electrodes in the thalamus on each side. And they showed that you could use this not only to detect seizure, but also to plan treatment and make inference, inferences about the seizure onset and, the ter and termination patterns. So as such, we can see that while DBS is classically open loop with no sensing and implanted in a global generalized fashion, and RNS is classically focal sensing and only closed loop, we can see that now RNS is being used in loop DBS as an open loop or even in a generalized network implantation with detection and stimulation. And DBS has been used for sensing as well as implantation to the focal uh, areas or uh, ictal onset zones. So I, I think in the future, these two devices will look a lot similar. They will learn from each other and then they'll be you know, responsive neurostimulation and DBS will become two different brands of a device that's basically capable of doing multitude of things, reading, writing, multi-channel recording, and uh, even individual, you know, uh, contact programming. That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, we we talk about, you know, how different neuromodulation devices can be synergistic. And here, uh, one would think that with RNS and DBS, instead of synergy, there's going to be so much overlap that eventually we're going to be heading into um, the future where, you know, perhaps a single device can, can do all the things that these two current devices are doing at this point in time. Now, in terms of biomarkers to make uh, the, the current open loop stimulation um, a little smarter, what, what do you think needs to happen in that space for it to become a much more well-informed system? 
you know, the RNS uses um, ECOG recordings to do this. Do you think uh, with the DBS electrodes implanted in the thalamus, there's a, there's a different biomarker that needs to be identified? Yeah, so uh, in, in the general sense, I think even seizure pattern or epileptiform activity is could be considered a biomarker. But whether, and, and ECOG and field potential are more or less similar patterns of recording. They're both, you know, long-term multi-neuronal potential recordings. And as such, while one device was implanted with the epilepsy framework of mind is in place, so it recorded, you, re you recorded the bandwidth and applied filters to allow you to record a signal that you called ECOG, when in fact it's also a field potential, and uh, and also allow you were programming this to detect a pattern that has a particular amplitude that's called epileptiform activity, sharp, sharp and spike wave, and so forth. And then the other came from the movement disorder in which you recorded activity, you didn't call it ECOG, you called it field potential, and used the filters in in gain to to name it such, and used different methods for time frequency analysis to look at what's called the beta band power and then use that as a biomarker for movement disorder. To me, they're, they're the same. It is a field potential, you know, you know, base activity that you could call it ECOG or not. And you could apply multiple methods of quantitative signal processing and drive from that quantitative signal processing a marker or a sign to be used. I think when the time goes, you will use beta and gamma band in epilepsy, and you will use spike activity in movement disorder. So I, I think, again, these are artificial in a way. There are features of the device, don't get me wrong. And I think it's, the RNS is designed, for example, to be implanted in the, in the skull to allow for better signal to noise ratio. So you can see the epileptiform activity and you don't have to do what's called time frequency analysis. For DBS is implanted and it records time frequency analysis mostly because of the different signal to noise ratio. And you couldn't do this analysis at all time frequency of stimulation. There are specific frequency of stimulation that you could use to allow it to record. For example, you can't go below 55 Hertz, for example, to record to sense in the brain. But I think these are all engineering and technical features that will be resolved. In the future, I think there will be a blend. There will be a device, whether we have to implant it in the skull or in the chest, which one will work better for which disease, we'll figure it out. But I'm quite sure that the engineers are smart enough to kind of tackle all these things. We'll just have some sort of a multi-neuronal signal. The signal will have a bandwidth power between one hertz to 200 hertz. We'll have a sampling rate. The signal will be recorded and kept. And then you will do some signal processing, either by detection of a particular pattern recognition like spike for waveform, or you would analyze frequency band and show alteration in the band power, or even more sophisticated things such as what's called phase amplitude couplings, you know, uh, synchrony between two sides um, and phase coherence and whatnot. There's a lot of bands, but I think this is all gonna come from our a physician scientist, PhD neuroscientist, and engineers and mathematician. But this is another reason why I think the fields are converged. Because one is calling them ECOG and one is calling them field potential. They're basically the same signal, in my opinion.
Does that answer the question? Yeah, I, 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 More questions. Yeah, I, th I think that's really great. And um, you know, I we you know, as always, we run out of time with these pretty quickly. But I was, I was wondering if you wanted to comment a little bit on um, your use of using SEG in the thalamus or or other you know, electrodes in the thalamus to help determine if someone is a candidate for uh, thalamic uh, stimulation or, or looking for a thalamic signal that you'll be able to harness down down the road. Is that, is that something you have enough information to talk about or? Uh, I do. I do. I, I don't have a large series, but I do have. I've implanted a number of patients with thalamic electrodes, and I could tell you that uh, the use of thalamic electrodes has been as helpful in two ways. The one is the signal fidelity of detection. So, it's important. For example, you have somebody who you thought that you could do temporal lobectomy. The original hypothesis was temporal lobe epilepsy. You implanted demos on electrodes, but on SEG recording, you find that there's a widely distributed, you know, ictal onset zone. It is not just the hippocampus, it's eloquent cortex as well. Then the question is, okay, and all the patients also averse to loss of cognitive function. Like it's their dominant temporal lobe, but they work as an engineer. They're not, they don't want to take a risk. It's imaging normal temporal lobe epilepsy. So the water test or full skill IQ differential with the verbal IQ is not very high. They still have verbal memory and logic. They don't want to lose this. And then you are in the situation, yes, it's temporal epilepsy, but I'm thinking of something else. I'm thinking of, you know, stimulation in the thalamus or using an RNS. Having electrode in the anterior nucleus of the thalamus and seeing that you could actually detect each and every ictal onset zone in the anterior nucleus of the thalamus gives you some confidence. Yeah, this is a connected network. And then if you decide to use an RNS versus DBS, you can see, sure, I do see the signal. I trust that RNS will detect every seizure event in those patients. So that's one particular use. The second is that which is the best site for ictal onset zone detection, especially with posterior quadrant epilepsy. I just, actually, this was somebody who's in house now. Somebody who had a posterior cerebral artery stroke had a posterior quadrant ectal onset zone. We implanted them in the pulvinar CM and anterior nucleus of the thumbs. And we could see that you could see seizure onset zone reliably each and every time in the pulvinar and or the anterior nucleus, but not the CM. Wow, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. And and that kind of gets to- Unexpected. Yeah, and that kind of gets to the answer to Russia's question that each patient may have their own biomarker, right? right? But if it's something that you can, you can, you know, reliably use as a, as a kind of input to your system, it, it might be, uh, it might be valuable, but you have to, you think you're going to have to determine that on a patient by patient basis, if you wanted to use some sort of responsive stimulator? I think right now we do this, I think also implanting three electrodes in each thalamus, so six thalamic electrodes in every patient might be an overreach. And we have to look at our own complication and indication for doing this, especially these are very adjacent electrodes. So I can't say that in this day and age, the routine complete use of six thalamic stereo electrode in each and every patient is justified yet. It might come to that, but I don't think that we agree in a community that that's something that should be offered to every patient. I know some do that. Right now in my practice, we do this on a case by case basis if the hypothesis is really, really strongly temporal with very few malaligned data points, and we just want to do a for peace of mind, 
to make sure that when we target the dominant temporal lobe, that it's really, it is the ectal onset zone when there is no element of bilaterality. I don't think that that's a case you want to place a thalamic electrode. But if you're doing a stage, if somebody who had temporal lobe resection, had some seizure freedom, and now has a recurrence, and they're in a scalp EEG, so contralateral activity, and maybe some also epsilateral activity, this questionable insular involvement. Now this is a patient you may want to consider putting some thalamic electrodes because the possible permutations of treatments include all options. It includes resection, neuromodulation, a hybrid yeah. therapy, resection and neuromodulation. So those patients, I would implant the most thalamic electrodes. Yeah, that's really interesting for a not not uncommon sort of clinical scenario. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. And I, I, we're getting we're getting to the you know end of our time. Actually, the one thing you mentioned at the beginning that I kind of uh, thought about is that you know maybe the more controversial discussion would have been VNS versus uh, DBS, perhaps. Correct. <laughs> and you know which 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 one because those are both more kind of uh, network uh, modulatory, Correct. you know, different ways of getting into the system. But but uh, you know any any last thoughts about that? Yeah. So that that's that's a great question actually, and it comes up quite a bit. So I think it's I when I discuss this with my patient, I tell them, well, there's two methods to do this. Let me tell you, there are th some things that will sway you one way or the other. DBS in the original Sante trial had a 14% incidence depression, while VNS is used to treat depression. So if the patients are scoring low in their emotional scores, or there is comorbid potential depression, then that gravitates towards VNS, not towards DBS. Another differentiating features, you have a DBS, you have a whole body MRI, you know, you know compatibility, but you for, for VNS, you couldn't get an MRI from C7, so the cervical spine. So these are the first two things I look at. Do you have a hard contraindication? Somebody who needs a cervical MRI shouldn't get a VNS. Somebody with depression, you may want to consider VNS over DBS, not because DBS may cause depression. I think that has not been replicated in recent studies, but VNS is known to help depression. So these two, there's the first two questions I ask. And if once I get away from this and I have a discussion with the patient, and if the patient is mo more likely to get a stereo EG in the future, we haven't done intracranial EG. I will gravitate more about VNS because I don't want to use the cranium. If the patient is unlikely to get a stereo EG in the future, and this is the end therapy, then I would gravitate more towards DBS for a different reason, because I know that the pipeline of DBS includes sensing and recording in the future, and maybe even additional channels. So I know that this is a therapy that could be scaled to a different and higher, you know, treatment plans in the future. So this is kind of how that's I really think good point. Yeah. So that's the discussion, well, of course. And I told them one is more invasive than the other, but this is my checklist of deciding whether I should mm -hmm. give you VNS or DBS. Yeah. So as as I as predicted, we kind of ran through that really quickly, and, and you know, it's kind of a whirlwind tour of you know the things that we think about in epilepsy surgery. It's, it's a very complex complex and patient by patient decision most of the time. Um, Rushna, do you have any other kind of comments before we wrap up? Uh, yeah, just you know, thank you, Dr. Raslin, for giving us this in, incredibly thoughtful overview and insights into not just what the current state is, but mm -hmm. how the field is evolving and what the future holds, which is you know only exciting stuff that's going to allow us to be significantly more precise and thoughtful in in helping this um, otherwise pretty hard to tackle population. 
So I appreciate you coming on and, and talking to us about it. Thank you very much, both of you. And, and I couldn't be happier to be a host to two prominent you know, stars in neurosurgery, with Roshna and Sass. And I, I also am lucky that I know you on a personal basis beyond this. So, so I'm, I'm lucky to have you as friends and colleagues. Well, thank you. And that goes both ways. <laughs> uh, well, so we'll, we'll conclude with that. Thanks for everyone for listening and um, check out this and all the other podcasts both on cns.org and then all the uh, you know podcast platforms. Uh, thank you.